Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today is day 66 of Occupy Wall Street. And with me as virtual podcasters today are some of our fellow saloners who have either purchased a copy of my pay-what-you-can novel, The Genesis Generation, or who have made direct contributions to the salon to help pay for some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. And these fine people are John C., Matt C., Robert J., and Jason P. And uh, Jason, I hope that I've fixed that problem that you had in downloading my book, but if you're still having problems, uh, please let me know. Now, as you already know, uh, today I'm going to play the rest of that Robert Anton Wilson talk that he uh, gave in Santa Cruz, California in 1990, uh, the first part of which I played last week. And again, I want to thank Joe Metheny and the Original Falcon Press, which uh, you can find via OriginalFalcon.com. They're the ones that provided this material for me, and uh, that's also where you can find the DVD that I took this talk from in the uh, event that you want to watch this performance as well. Uh, Joe is the one that arranged this whole presentation, uh, owns the copyright, and has allowed me to play it here in the salon for you. So, Joe and Falcon, uh, thank you again for letting me share this with the tribe. Now, my guess is that uh, for many of our fellow saloners, a lot of what Bob Wilson talks about here will sound like it's all fiction, and the parts about the Illuminati could well be. Maybe so, maybe not. But most of what he talks about, uh, like how and when the CIA and the Mafia first got in bed together, and the story of John Hull and the Lapenka bombing, well, the uh, first of those things I read about in several scholarly books, and the stories about Hull, Lapenka, and the Christic Institute, and uh, all that are stories that I produced TV shows about on the cable access station in Tampa, Florida, back in the 80s and 90s. In fact, uh, I was told not long ago that a couple of my old shows are still being played on the Access Channel during the wee hours of the night. So if you're a corporate road warrior who is visiting Tampa some night and can't sleep, well then uh, keep an eye out for a rerun of the shows called Freedom Now, Reality Check, Big Brother's Latest Lies, or my final program, Anarcho Cyber Sludge, all of which uh, I produced in uh, most of the things I was in, actually. But uh, don't think high production values here. <laughs> think Wayne's World, uh, but not quite so good. You know, it was really fun doing those shows, I have to admit. Uh, and it was all free, you know, uh, community access television it was called. And uh, I've heard that most stations have dropped those programs, though. And, uh, of course, uh, we don't need that so much with the net so rich in video these days. Uh, yeah, who needs cable when you've got the net, huh? Anyway, uh, enough of me. Let's now get on to the one and only Robert Anton Wilson. There's recently been a book by a Jungian psychologist uh, named Ian Begg called The Cult of the Black Virgin. At least one of these books is actually here to show you I'm not making all this up as I go along. Oh, here's Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Ian Begg... I uh, made a study of the 400 and uh, something more than 400 statues in European churches of the Virgin Mary, in which the Virgin Mary appears to be black or Negro. Now, if, the, if these statues all appeared in the last 40 
or 60 years, you might make a good case uh, of attributing them to the Rastafarians. The Rastafarians believe that Jesus and his whole family were black. They also believe all the heroes of the Old Testament were black. They got some good biblical references to back this. If you believe that black in the King James Version means black racially, uh, depends on, there's room for interpretation. But the Rastafarians did not do this. These statues have been there for 700 years. Most of them can be definitely dated to the 13th century. So who did it? Well, according to Ian Begg, the Priory of Science did it. For some reason in the 13th century, they went all over Europe planting statues to indicate that the, the, house of the, the House of David was black, or at least part of it was black by the time it got to Jesus anyway. Why did they do this? Well, maybe, maybe it was true. Uh, if you take a look at the map, the Near East and Africa are pretty close. There must have been a lot of genetic drift back and forth. Read some of the Rastafarian literature. They'll convince you. They, they have a lot of good... Ian Begg doesn't go into that. He says black is a symbol of the supreme mystical state. Uh, only the ignorant Buddhists think white light represents the supreme mystical state. The Sufis know that above the white light there's the trance of total blackness, which is the highest trance of all the true nature of everything, which Alistair Crowley described as nothing. The true nature of everything is nothing. <laughs> that is the negative void. You think of a positive void as endless whiteness. you got to think of it as endless blackness to get the negative void, the capitalistic zero, and that's the true essence of everything, according to the Sufi tradition and according to Alistair Crowley. Who, by the way, was associated with the priest who built that church in Rendlesha Town says this place is terrible and has the Scotchman in Kills at the crucifixion. <laughs> Crowley learned magic from McGregor Mathers, who uh, was a Scotchman who uh, claimed his family had been Freemasons since the days of the Knights Templar and that he was the reincarnation of King James II, uh, the last Scotch king of England. But that's more or less a digression, don't let it confuse you. I'm trying to make this as simple as possible. Ian Bank, yeah, the cult of the Black Virgin. Uh, the Priory of Science put these statues all over here. matter of fact, there's one in Dublin. Uh, Our Lady of Dublin is black. I've actually seen her. And like all the other black virgins around Europe, she was lost and refound. Almost every one of these black statues, there's a legend about how she got lost and then miraculously was recovered. A lady of Dublin was found in a blacksmith's yard after being lost for 200 years. Genesis. Uh, this fellow studies the geometry of that church in Renly Chateau in relation to the geometry of the surrounding area. You see, he manages to make pentagons. He manages to make spirals. All sorts of interesting patterns. Yeah, this is the one he calls the vagina of Nuit. The week was the Egyptian star goddess. Uh, this illustrates the first law of uh, lay hunters, which is that any group of churches and prehistoric megaliths can be connected into an interesting geometrical pattern <laughs> if you use a small enough map and a thick enough pencil. <laughs> he uses a small enough map and a thick enough pencil to get the most interesting diagrams I've ever seen in any of these lay hunting books. And he proves, once he's got his diagrams of the relation of the church to the prehistoric megaliths uh, and various stars, 
he proves that France was settled by people from Atlantis. When Atlantis sank, some of the survivors got to France, and they kept alive the tradition of how the human race was created. The human race was created by an extraterrestrial named Satan. Satan was not an angel at all. He was an extraterrestrial. And we've all got his genetic strain. So we are all children of Satan. And once we recognize that, we will be liberated and ready for the next revelation from outer space. Now, you've got to admit. <laughs> you've got to admit. <laughs> some people are stupid, some people are batshit crazy, and some are just full of shit. You've got to admit, this is much better bullshit than you get from Romford. <laughs> <laughs> Romford has been dead 40,000 years and hasn't had an original thought at all that time. <laughs> You can't get anything from Romp that you can't get from Paul Bach reading cards. <laughs> well, in the editorials and Reader's Digest. This stuff is original and provocative. This stuff might actually come from extraterrestrials. At least it shows a, a, a rather uh, transhuman sense of humor and a definite attempt to adjust our minds in such a way that we are no longer sure that we fully understand the difference between poetry and reality, which is another reason for suspecting Cocteau was the main architect. Uh, but this, is, this does enlarge the mind, liberate the energies, and create an acute case of paranoia when you trace all the people on that Merovingian chart, like Otto von Habsburg is the president of the Society for the United States of Europe, They've been working for decades to create a united Europe, which is about to appear. Just when they're about to do it, the whole Eastern Bloc breaks loose from Russia. Why did Gorbachev let them break loose? Who's dealing with who behind the scenes? What has this got to do with the gnomes of Zurich? <laughs> put up the financing before any major political change can occur. What has this got to do with the Pei-Du group in Italy? Pei-Du was using the Vatican Bank to launder most of the cocaine money from South America and most of the heroin money from the Near East. The heroin money came by way of the Grey Wolves, one of whom, Mehmet, Mali, Mehmet Ali Aja, ran the money through the Banco Ambrosiano in Milan, which was owned by the Vatican Bank. He tried to shoot the Pope, remember, in St. Peter's Square? It's funny how many people have tried to kill this Pope. It's like a mafia family, isn't it? Uh, so on. Uh, but right now, those of you who are absolutely desperate to ask questions, here's your chance. Yes? Um, the availability of the Polestar? Uh, the Polestar, uh, the inventor died. Uh, it is now being manufactured under the name Blue Star. And I have not got the uh, manufacturer's address memorized. You will have to start out with that full Blue Star and yourself. Thank you. It's the best I can build. Yes? Being you were once an editor of Playboy, having comments on Hughes' recent marriage? <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, that's ten years. Uh, <laughs> seeing as I once lived in Chicago, do I have any comments on the current mayor? Uh, son of Richard Daly. It sounds like the greatest horror movie ever. <laughs> I had enough of Richard Daly in the 60s. You have to, so you have to get married. Uh, I can't think of a damn thing. But have a what I said before. The next week in the book, uh, up on the shelf, Cosmic Trigger, you know, more and more, at least we're looking into it. 
up stones and kill me. Next question. <laughs> uh, you already have a question. Yep. Uh, you've made a lot of very optimistic predictions in the past. Uh, a lot of people seem to have predictions about the time frame of the changes that we seem to be in. Do you have a, a latest prediction uh, regarding the time frame? And to quote Robert Heinlein, it does not pay a profit to be too specific. <laughs> but uh, things have been happening so fast lately. When I started, I did a European tour in November. When I started the tour, people were saying the Berlin Wall is going to come down within 10 years. When I finished the tour, people were saying, which week will it be? When I got back here, the wall came down already. I got a piece of a wall on my mantelpiece sent to me by a friend in Berlin. Things are happening so fast that the only prediction I'll make is that everything is going to happen faster than we expected. <coughs> okay, any more questions? Yes? Where is Gregory Hill and what's he up to? Uh, uh, Gregory Hill is the head of a large computer facility uh, owned by one of the largest banks in the United States. He's not writing anymore, running this big computer uh, complex is keeping him busy enough, and he's still the same whimsical, surrealist character, which makes me wonder what's happening to the banking system. Kerry <laughs> <laughs> Thornley? Uh, Kerry Thornley is still sending out uh, long uh, documents explaining that he killed John Kennedy while under hypnosis by the CIA, and I was a CIA babysitter, and I only deny it because all CIA agents deny what they did. <laughs> and I thank him for the publicity. <laughs> Made Russell charged in Conspiracy Digest that I am a paid agent of the Rockefeller Conspiracy. In the next issue of Conspiracy Digest, I confess that it was true. Nelson, uh, I mean David, uh, I, I said Nelson because when Illuminatus first came out, I was disappointed that Dell wasn't doing enough advertising and I didn't have a budget myself. So I figured, what can I afford to do? So I had a rubber stamp made. And I put it on all my letters, and wherever I went, if I, there wasn't a cop looking, I put it on the billboard, I put it on toilet paper, and the men's room, and movie theaters. Everywhere I went, I put this rubber stamp and said, Why is Nelson Rockefeller never seen in public without his trousers? Read Illuminatus. <laughs> that would arouse a lot of curiosity. This goes to show artists never understand the depth of their own inspiration or how the collective unconscious works. Because when Nelson Rockefeller died, he didn't have his trousers on, as you may remember. Anyway, I, uh, in my confession in Conspiracy Digest, I said Mae Russell was right. David Rockefeller comes around every week and gives me a bar of solid gold. My whole cellar is stacked from floor to ceiling with these bars of Rockefeller gold. And then I ended woof, woof, woof. And I'm sure, knowing May, she was going around showing that later to people for years, saying, here, he confessed, and he even gives away his extraterrestrial origin. He gets from the dog star in there. 
Okay, well, we will now continue with the evening's entertainment. And I hope you find as many yachts in the second part as you found in the first part. <laughs> uh, during World War II, a young Italian named Vicio Gelli managed to uh, get himself a position in the communist underground in Italy and a job with the Gestapo at the same time. You will already see that Mr. Jelly was uh, good at uh, fancy footwork. He managed to go through the whole war uh, working for the underground and the Gestapo simultaneously, persuading each side that he was betraying the other and actually loyally serving them. Uh, a lot of people went to their deaths because Jelly turned them into the Gestapo. A lot of people did not go to their deaths because Jelly did not turn them into the Gestapo. There was some attempt to bring him to trial as a war criminal at the end of the war, but this was stopped by the numbers of people who came forth and said he helped the underground more than anybody in Italy, so he got off scot-free. He thereupon went to work set up an office in Rome with a couple of friends who were expert forgers and created an alternative ID for uh, not wanted Nazi war criminals, most of whom went to Latin America, and Jelly later got them jobs with American intelligence there, among <coughs> them was Klaus Barbie, whom you may have heard of. Uh, Jelly pretty soon staffed uh, the Latin American branch of the CIA with uh, Nazi war criminals, uh, one or two of whom gets caught every year, and the CIA always throws up their hands and say, we didn't know he was a Nazi war criminal, we thought he just looked like that Nazi war criminal. Uh, Jelly uh, officially went to work for the CIA in the 1950s. He was working out of the American Embassy in Rome, according to quite a few witnesses. Uh, one of his first major jobs for the CIA was turning the Italian labor movement away from the left-wing direction it was taking after World War II in a right-wing direction. He accomplished this by a variety of means, one of which was persuading Sophia Loren to star in a television commercial denouncing the left-wing unions and telling everybody to join the right-wing unions, for which Sophia got paid a pretty penny. A pile of lira. Like I told you, you can get movie stars to say anything these <laughs> days. Uh, that didn't pull the, that didn't exactly turn the tide all by itself. So Jelly hired a bunch of his friends in the mafia to shoot all the uh, heads of the left-wing labor unions in Italy uh, who wouldn't take bribes to take uh, more right-wing positions. And so the CIA was very delighted with Mr. Jelly, and he became one of their major European uh, assets, as they say, just like Noriega in Panama, uh, major asset. Around this time, Jelly was uh, recruited by the KGB. Well, why not? If you, if you can convince the Nazis and the communists you're on the same side during World War II, you can convince the CIA and the communists you're on their side during the Cold War. So he was receiving uh, payments from the KGB and the CIA for a variety of projects when he entered the Grand Orient Lodge of Egyptian Freemasonry. The Grand Orient Lodge of Egyptian Freemasonry was founded in 1771 by the Duc de Orléans, who had ambitions of becoming king. 
all we all know that if the right seven people died at the right time, he would succeed to being king. It was just a question of persuading these seven people to die at the right time. <laughs> and uh, as some Italian Renaissance prince victim know that he is pushed by a friend, it is only important that he is dead. <laughs> uh, there are some Italians who felt that you had to know a friend was doing it to you when it happened. So, uh, the, the, uh, well, to get into the subtleties of the Roman psyche is a little, <laughs> it goes a little too deep. Uh, you got to read the Maltese for all kinds of Oh, anyway, uh, Orleon uh, was uh, assisted in founding the Grand Orient Lodge by Count Cagliostro who, as everybody knows, was actually a Sicilian gypsy named Joseph Balsamo. Everybody knows that who hasn't read Charles Floyd and Colin Wilson, both of whom have pointed out that the identification of Cagliostro with Balsamo was made by one witness, was never proved, and had just been repeated by historians because nobody knows who he really was. And most historians go on the principle, if you find one source that says something, and all the other sources don't know anything, we'll just repeat this. Nobody actually knows who Cagliostro was, or where he came from, except that he seemed to belong to every secret society in Europe, had all their insignias on his robes, knew all their secret grips and passwords, and had a hell of a lot of money, which he distributed in poor neighborhoods all over France while he was doing miracle healings using mesmerism. And the Grand Orient Lodge became the biggest Masonic Lodge in pre-revolutionary France. And the leaders of the Grand Orient Lodge all ended up the leaders of the new government after the revolution, except for Orléans, who got his head chopped off, which illustrates Wilson's first law of conspiracies. The greatest conspirators are usually the greatest fuck-ups. Orléans did not get what he wanted. He got his head chopped off instead. Cagliostro died in a dungeon in Rome, awaiting trial by the Inquisition. Uh, the Grand Orient Lodge was involved in quite a lot of radical activity through the 19th century, including the Paris Commune of the 1870s. When uh, Jelly entered the Grand Orient Lodge, he ascended to the third degree, which is pretty low, uh, comparatively speaking, because there are 32 degrees. After attending the third degree, learning the identity of the widow's son, and uh, that of which it is wisest not to speak, uh, Jelly founded uh, Propaganda Due, which was named after Propaganda Uno, which was a Masonic socialist conspiracy of the 1870s. Except Propaganda Due, unlike Propaganda Uno, was not a socialist conspiracy, it was a fascist conspiracy. He rec recruited most of the remaining fascists in Italy uh, and then set about recruiting everybody in a position of power. One of the rules of propaganda due was that you had to write out in handwriting, not on typewriter, you had to write in your own handwriting and give to the Grand Master of the Lodge, Michio Gelli, a complete confession of all your crimes and sins, everything illegal and unethical you had ever done. And because Propaganda Due had acquired the reputation of being the people who were getting into power in Italy, a lot of people wanted to join, so they wrote out these confessions, and this gave Jelly ample opportunity to blackmail people who didn't want to join Pay Due. 
he called him up and told him what he had in his files and said, unless you join Pei Hue, this goes to the press tomorrow. So, in 1981, when Pei Hue exploded into public notice, uh, they discovered there were 451 members of Pei Hue in key positions in the Italian government, including the head of the secret police. When the police went to arrest Jelly, he had already left Italy and flown to Uruguay because the head of the secret police had tipped him off, being a member of Pei Hue himself. The head of the secret police was indicted for conspiring with Jelly to overthrow the government, install a new fascist government, and in the course of this conspiracy, they performed, the investigating magistrates alleged, several terrorist bombings which they blamed on the Red Brigades to persuade the Italians there was a massive anarchist threat loose in the country and they needed a fascist government to protect them from it. The head of the secret police died before he could be brought to trial. He was a knight of Malta, so was Jelly. The Knights of Malta are an ancient Vatican uh, secret society devoted to trying to put things back to the way they were in the 13th century, more or less. The main purpose of the Knights of Malta is to correct the errors that have crept into the Western world since the rise of Protestantism. Uh, the Western world is full of people who do, not, who do not acknowledge the infallibility of the Pope. This is an error. Uh, the Western world is full of people who believe it's legitimate to overthrow and ordain the monarch. This is an error. Uh, Pope Leo the, the Faulty findeth, as Joyce calls him. What, what, Leo, what Leo was, what number did he have? Oh, you know the bastard I mean. Leo in the 1870s, he wrote a syllabus of errors, listing all the errors of the modern world. Most of them you'll find in the American Bill of Rights. These are all errors. Freedom of the press is an error. The press only has the freedom to print the truth, and the church defines the truth. The idea that we can print whatever we want is an error. Uh, the function of the Knights of Malta is to undo the Protestant Reformation, undo the democratic revolutions of the 18th century, and reestablish papal control over the whole world, the way it should be, the way Jesus intended it to be when he founded the Catholic Church. You all know Jesus founded the Catholic Church, right? <laughs> So, Jelly was a knight of Malta, the chief of the secret police was a knight of Malta. Within masonry, which the knights of Malta have been trying to abolish for 200 years, they founded this quasi-Masonic order called Pei Dui. The, uh, the next in line for chief of the secret police, after the, chief, the head of the secret police died, turned out to be a member of Pei Dui also. He, he was brought to trial for conspiracy in the Bologna Railway bombing and acquitted. Jelly, uh, uh, in the early 1970s, had recruited Roberto Calvi, who was a uh, middle rank officer of Banco Brosiano, a bank owned by the Vatican Bank, but operating as a separate organization in Milan. Roberto Calvi believed that power in this world uh, is based on what the Italians call uh, uh, secret power. All open power is based on secret power that works behind the scenes. Calvi told this to everybody he ever got into a philosophical discussion with. He told it to his son. He told it to other workers at the bank. It was one of his favorite topics when he wasn't recommending the Godfather. 
Calvi always told everybody, there's only one novel you have to read. <laughs> read The Godfather. That's the book that shows the way the world is really run. The rest of it is all romantic nonsense. So Calvi had a deep passion to find out who held the secret power so he could join them and be on the winning side, which makes a lot of sense if you want to be on the win. I'm always amazed by paranoids who find out who holds the power and then spend all their time fighting with them. If you know who holds the power, the thing to do is join them. If you're going to fight them, you're just going to wear yourself down, right? Doesn't that make sense? Or do we have some idealists left in the world? <laughs> well, Calvi joined uh, Propaganda Douay and got to be president of Banco Ambrosiano. Nicola Sindona, who was a lawyer for the mafia, for several mafia families in particular in Sicily, he joined Pei Douay and got sent over to the United States where he offered Richard Nixon a million dollars for the 1972 campaign, which Nixon's people decided to decline because uh, they didn't like uh, the possibility of this being traced back to the mafia. Whether they ever managed to give the million dollars to Nixon through some subterranean channel, they have been unable to discover. But Sindona was at Nixon's inauguration that year. Sinona founded the Franklin National Bank in this country and shortly thereafter was convicted of 65 counts of stock and currency fraud and faking his own kidnapping to avoid trial on those 65 counts. Then he hired Nixon, was out of office by then, he hired Nixon's law firm to fight his extradition to Italy and they fought for a long time, seven or eight years, before Sinona was finally sent back to Italy where he was convicted of murdering a bank examiner in connection with the failure of several of his banks over there from which he had embezzled as much money as he, as he had embezzled from the Franklin National Bank over here. And then he was about to stand trial for conspiracy with Jelly and General uh, Michielli of the secret police and Michio Jelly uh, in this fascist conspiracy to overthrow the government of Italy. Before he could stand trial on that charge, he was poisoned in his cell. Roberto Calvi was indicted for embezzling from his own bank, for laundering heroin money for the Grey Wolves and other groups in the Near East. But the Grey Wolves are especially interesting. They believe Allah, the Islamic God, has appointed them to destroy the state of Israel. Now, Allah... Uh, like many gods, is inscrutable. He says, go do this, and he doesn't tell you how. The Grey Wolves are a bunch of poor Palestinians with uh, not a pot to piss in, so to speak, or at least they were when they started out. How are they going to overthrow Israel? Well, they figured out how. They started dealing heroin. And pretty soon they had enough money to buy lots of guns. And then they found another source of money. They started renting out some of their leading, their most talented young men as assassins to other terrorist groups around Europe. And that made more money for them. Finally, one of them tried to shoot the Pope for reasons that have never been explained. It gets Byzantine, doesn't it? <laughs> this money was being laundered through the Banco Ambrosiano, which was owned by the Vatican Bank, which was managed by Archbishop Paul Marchinkus. Have you ever heard of Archbishop Paul Marchinkus before tonight? Isn't that amazing? Everybody in Europe has heard of Archbishop Paul by now. And in this country, he got into the headlines back in uh, the early 70s when Frank Hogan, the district attorney of New York, tried to extradite him to the United States to stand trial. 
and the Vatican refused to let him be extradited. And there was a bit of a tussle over that. What Hogan wanted Marchinkus to stand trial for was Hogan had, uh, and his investigators, had discovered that the Rizzi family in New York and the Roselli family in Las Vegas. Uh, now, Johnny Roselli started out as a gunman for Al Capone, but he ended up running all mafia projects in the Las Vegas, Nevada area. Johnny Roselli was frequently accused of being in on the Kennedy assassination by various uh, amateurish and bungling conspiracy investigators who aren't as smart as I am. Uh, I mean, by conspiracy investigators of the highest intelligence and integrity who arrived at different conclusions than me. Uh, Johnny Roselli and, uh, and the Rizzi family in New York printed a billion dollars in counterfeit stock and deposited them in the Vatican Bank, whereupon they disappeared. The Vatican Bank is the financial equivalent of a black hole. Uh, you know, a black hole, nothing ever gets out of, not even light. Even light can't escape from a black hole. Well, nobody knows what's going on in the Vatican Bank except the people who run it, because the Italian bank examiners can't get in. Uh, the Vatican is not part of Italy. It's a sovereign state. That's why Noriega could take refuge in the Vatican embassy. It's a sovereign state. They have embassies just like any other government. They're not only a church, they're a government too. So nobody can get into the Vatican Bank. So once something gets into the Vatican Bank, it disappears from profane view, and only God and Archbishop Marcinkus know what becomes of it. So $1 billion of counterfeit stock went into the Vatican Bank and was seen no more. Now, letters were produced in which Archbishop Marcinkus is corresponding with Johnny Roselli about getting this billion dollars in counterfeit stock. Now, the defenders of the good Archbishop, of whom you'll find quite a few among biased Roman Catholics who don't want to believe that an Archbishop would be engaged in knowingly dealing in counterfeit stocks, they claim he thought he was buying real stocks. He didn't know the Mafia prints counterfeit stocks. Well, that's possible, because maybe he thought he was dealing in baby booties, and they never explained that we got a booty. But if he thought he was buying real stocks, it's very strange that he paid only one-tenth of the face value, because that's the going price for counterfeit stocks, one-tenth of the face value. Uh, counterfeit stocks travel around the world uh, faster and faster all the time, going in one direction. It's very much like quantum theory. You can never know where they are. You just know they've been here, and now they're going to be there. You never know where they are. Uh, if you have a business that's in trouble and you buy counterfeits, you buy enough counterfeit stocks, let's say you can be got enough capital to, uh, let's say, just a million dollars. So you got a million dollars and you have debts of three million dollars and they're all, why the sheriff is at the door, your business might go bankrupt any day. So you take your million dollars and buy ten million dollars worth of counterfeit stocks. You deposit the $10 million of counterfeit stocks in your bank. You've now got a $10 million line of credit. You pay you off everybody you owe money to. You're not in trouble anymore. You expand your business. You hire new people. You buy, build new plants. And then you sell the stock to somebody else equally desperate. <coughs> and if the, if the stock keep moving fast enough, they don't get caught. The stocks that get caught are not counterfeit stocks by and large. It's stolen stocks that are banks are apt to notice. Counterfeit stocks, they sometimes notice, but if they move fast enough, the banks don't look at them that closely, and so they keep traveling. So this billion dollars in counterfeit stocks went into the Vatican Bank, 
And God knows where it went after that. The banks started collapsing all over the world. Wall Street almost collapsed with this continuous turmoil in the international economic community because $10 billion in counterfeit stocks is more goddamn counterfeit stocks than have ever been loose at any one time before. Well, uh, District Attorney Hogan did not manage to extradite Wachinkas. Nixon intervened to protect Wachinkas. Uh, uh, there's an implication that Nixon was afraid of losing the Catholic vote. I don't know. Uh, Nixon also had uh, Sedona as a guest at his inauguration, so one feels there was a closer connection than just the Catholic vote. Um, in 1981, the district attorney of Dade County uh, indicted eight officers of the Royal Finance Corporation in Miami uh, for operating, he said, knowingly operating the largest cocaine laundromat ever uncovered. Uh, he the DA got interested in the this bank, the World Finance Corporation, because garbage men had told the police that they kept finding marijuana stems in the garbage. No, no, not stems, the, 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 the stalks, the stalks that you break the stems off before you take the leaves off the stems, you know. They break big marijuana stalks in the garbage all the time. And uh, these garbage men apparently weren't pot smokers themselves. Well, they would have kept their mouth shut and just went into the bank and said, can we buy some? You know? <laughs> they went and told the police, and the police told the DA, and they put the bank under surveillance. And they very soon discovered that people were coming from Panama every day with uh, briefcases full of cash. Panama is the only country in the world that uses American dollars outside America as its currency. These people are coming every day with briefcases full of money, not, not checks, cash. And this bank was running it all through the Cisalpine Bank in the Bahamas. And so the district attorney started investigating the Cisalpine Bank in the Bahamas. And guess who owned the Cisalpine Bank in the Bahamas? Archbishop Marchinkus and Roberto Calvi. And the money went from the Cisalpine Bank to the Vatican Bank, along with all the heroin money from the Grey Wolves and the Catholic Church was getting richer all the time. And some of the money was going to Poland to support solidarity, which made the CIA very happy. Uh, a lot of the money found its way back to Central America to support the death squads that the CIA is running because the Senate Intelligence Committee, from the time Jimmy Carter got in in 1976, until uh, Reagan got in in 1980, the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, was getting a lot of cooperation from Stanfield Turner, who was the head of the CIA at that time, disapproved of the CIA's involvement with the drug business, and fired over 400 agents for being involved in the drug business. And the Senate Intelligence Committee was learning a great deal about the CIA's involvement in the drug business, so the CIA fired all these people, who thereupon went into the drug business in a much bigger way than ever before. And Theodore Shapley, who was running all this, was dispatched by them, according to the Christic Institute, who has doc which has documents, he was dispatched by them to persuade George Bush, who had been the supervisor of the whole project, to run for president. So if they could get Bush into the White House, they could go back into business as they were doing it before, inside the government instead of outside the government, and thereby have greater protection. Well, Bush did not win the presidency. He only got the vice presidency. 
But Reagan made him the head of the National Security Agency, which gave him oversight over the CIA. So they were all soon back in business again, which is why in 1981 they had this bank with eight CIA agents running it in Miami. And I was wondering, all this cocaine money to pay for the death squads, which Congress wasn't supposed to know anything about, and which most Americans still don't know anything about even today. You say death squads to most people, and they say, you know, you mean the Nazis in the Second World War, something like that? No, I mean death squads right now all over Latin America, killing anybody who objects to American domination. They come into villages at night, they shoot people at random to terrorize the whole village. This is being paid for by the drug business. I'm sorry if you like cocaine, this may make you feel a bit queasy about it, but uh, I told you you wouldn't find this part as funny as the first part. I'm telling you occult secrets. These are things that are hidden that the profane do not know about, that are not revealed in the mass media. The uh, Royal Finance Corporation was run by Hernandez Cataya, who was one of the people, along with Howard Hunt, who had masterminded the Bay of Pigs invasion. Now, in the Watergate tapes, don't they sound like Mae Russell? Yes. <laughs> uh, in the Watergate tapes, you find that Howard Hunt demanded a million dollars. Among other things, he not only threatened to tell the truth about Watergate, but he said he'd reveal that whole Bay of Pigs thing. And, and Nixon says, oh, we can't let him talk about that Bay of Pigs thing. I'll get the million dollars. I know how to get a million dollars. Remember that part of the tapes? And does anybody remember? It was way back. It was 73. Does anybody remember that far back? <laughs> you, can, you, you can still see dramatizations of these tapes with Rip Talk playing Nixon <laughs> on the television. Um, what Bay of Pigs thing was Nixon so worried about that he was willing to pay a million dollars? I thought all the Bay of Pigs secrets were out by 73. Apparently there was something that, they, that was still hidden in 73, and Nixon paid a million dollars to keep it covered up, and it hasn't come out yet. Hunt kept his mouth shut. Hunt's wife got the first payment of the million dollars, got on a plane, and the plane crashed just short of Chicago Airport, you may remember. The pilot was found to have an unusual concentration of cyanide in his blood. But the investigator who was appointed by Nixon, Nixon threw out the head of the FAA, which investigates such things, and put in somebody else, who announced, oh, it's normal for people to have that much cyanide. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what they say, I swear. That's what they say. When Ronald Reagan took office, Licio Jelly was a guest at the inaugural party. Remember Licio Jelly? He was the one who set up this whole... Uh, organization between the Knights of Walter, the CIA, and the cocaine business, and the death squads, and uh, Klaus Barbie and his old friends from Winchester. Uh, in 1944, before the invasion of Sicily, the OSS, the parent of the CIA, uh, went to uh, Lucky Luciano, who was serving a term for procurement curing, or for running a prostitution ring, or whatever the hell is the legal term for it. And they told Lucky Luciano, we'll get you out of prison early if you will send messages to your friends in the Sicilian Mafia to help the American troops in the invasion rather than opposing them. Luciano agreed. The invasion of Sicily went off very smoothly and quickly. 
and the American intelligence community found itself uh, married to the mafia from then on. They never did get untangled. After the war, they used the mafia to uh, attack the French labor unions in southern France, and then onward uh, through Licio Gelli, they went after the Italian labor unions and so on. And uh, it gets harder and harder as uh, decades pass from the 1940s to the present. You can never say this was mafia or this was CIA. The two are so intertwined that all you can say is this was mafia and or CIA. On the other hand, William Casey, who died while under investigation in the Iran-Contra, Wait a minute, that was General Musumici. He died while under investigation in the Bologna Railway bombing. Oh, it happened to, it happened to William Casey, too. Uh, people under investigation often die suddenly. It's, uh, it's the stress of publicity, I guess. Uh, William Casey, like General Musumici, was a knight of Malta. Just like Licio Gelli, who set this whole thing up. Just like Roberto Calvi, who ran the Banco Ambrosiano and the Cisalpine Bank with Archbishop Machinkas. Roberto Calvi was found hanging from a bridge in London on June 18, 1982. Uh, Scotland Yard ruled that it was suicide. There was a lot of criticism in the English newspapers, and there was especially a hell of a lot of criticism of the fact that the, uh, Calvi was a Freemason, and the detective who investigated for Scotland Yard was a Freemason, too. And that Calvi was found hanging with a rising tide that covered his dead body. Now, the first degree oath in Freemasonry includes, or used to include, they changed it since Calvi's death, by the way. <laughs> it used to include, and if I ever betray my fellows in the craft, may I be hanged where the rising tide will cover my dead body. Which uh, pretty clearly indicates that Calvi was killed by his fellow Freemasons, or by somebody who ardently wishes us to think he was killed by his fellow <laughs> Freemasons. His wife claims he was killed by the Vatican. Uh, Clara Calvi has said consistently from the beginning, from the time Calvi was found hanging from the bridge, she still says, he told her, he called from London and said he was going to come back to Italy, surrender, turn state's evidence, and reveal the people in the Vatican who had hatched all these major crimes he was involved in. Generally, when you turn state's evidence on crimes of that level, you get off. The other people take the fall. And uh, he said he's afraid that the Vatican will try to kill him, but he thought he had enough on them that they wouldn't dare do it in public. That's sort of the way uh, General Noriega feels right now. They won't dare do it. Well, everybody knows I'm here in the prison. And, uh, anybody want to give odds that Noriega will survive two months? <laughs> two months. Three, how about three months? <laughs> Uh, Calvi's son also says the Vatican ordered his death. Uh, there's another book written by two Italian journalists who claims the mafia killed Calvi because he shortchanged them on one of the heroin deals. So there's more than one theory about Calvi. Now the interesting thing is the Knights of Malta include Otto von Habsburg, who's also a member of the Priory of Sion and the president of the Society for the United States of Europe and a direct descendant of Jesus Christ, if you believe the genealogies in Holy Blood, Holy Grail. So maybe the earth is hollow after all. In Costa Rica, there is a farm far, far away, and the farm belonged to a man named John Hull. 
How many people have ever heard of Joanne Paul? Hey, hey, are we getting winning to... <laughs> uh, John Hull is uh, an allegedly former CIA agent like the eight guys who were running the World Finance Corporation in Miami. The DA claimed he could prove they were all still CIA agents. The CIA claimed they were ex-CIA agents. It seems to me the distinction is very metaphysical. Uh, anybody, it's, uh, it's been, uh, since Fouché at least, it's been common practice in the intelligence to fire somebody when you want them to do something so bad that you don't want to track back to the agency. So they get fired and they get paid through a numbered bank account in Switzerland and they go on working, but nobody can prove it. And the eight guys who were running the World Finance Corporation laundering all that cocaine money seem to be in that class. And... Uh, John Hull was probably in that class, too. He had a huge farm in Costa Rica. The Costa Rican government has indicted him for using the farm to illegally receive arms from Ali North, transport the arms to the Contras in Nicaragua, pick up cocaine from the Contras, and ship the cocaine back to Miami. And uh, John Hull left Costa Rica as soon as they indicted him. He disappeared for a while. He was then reported in Miami. The Costa Rican government asked the American government to extradite him. The Justice Department replied that they couldn't find him. It turns out he's living on a ranch in Indiana. But the Justice Department still hasn't gotten around to extraditing him back to Costa Rica. Meanwhile, the Costa Rican government, after further investigation, has indicted John Hull for murder in the La Penca bombing in which several journalists were killed trying to cover an interview, uh, a public statement by a guy who was on the side of the Sandinistas during the revolution against Somoza, decided he didn't like the Sandinista government, joined the Contras, decided he didn't like the Contras, and started his own revolution. And he was going to make a statement denouncing the Contras as being a tool of the CIA when the bomb was set that killed several journalists. Uh, the Christic Institute claims to have enough evidence to prove that John Hull and his crowd at the ranch manufactured the bomb, and it was delivered by a CIA agent. The Costa Rican government believes it, and they indicted Hull for the murder. Uh, the media in this country, for some reason, is not interested in John Hull at all. you got to hunt and I don't know how the hell you people ever found out about John Hull. you got to hunt and hunt to find stories about the whole case. Uh, Hull was introduced to Ali North by Dan Quayle. <laughs> uh, this was in the L.A. Uh, Times the day Hull was indicted for murder. And I thought, Dan Quayle? Now, where have I heard that name before? <laughs> then I remember George Bush, who was persuaded to run for president by Theodore Sheckley. Theodore Sheckley, who was running the Seacord, Hakeem, Cocaine, and Guns Cartel all those years after Jimmy Carter threw them out of the CIA, uh, and Theodore Shackley was running this whole goddamn guns cocaine thing. Uh, he, uh, wait a minute, I got so entangled in my grammar, I forgot where I was going. Um, well, he asked Bush to run for president. Yeah, Theodore Shackley asked Bush to run for president. Bush didn't make it the first time. The next time he ran for president, he said, look at who I select for vice president. That will tell you all about me. Now, you track Dan Quayle's record back, and he wasn't, after he got out of the Indiana National Guard, there's a hell of a lot of evidence that while serving in Congress, he was also working for the CIA. 
with the whole hang with the Shackley bunch outside the CIA. That's how we got to know John Hall, whom he introduced to Ali North. Now, if you look at Ali North in his testimony, you will notice that he has a, a certain interesting expression in his eyes. And if you think back, those of you who are old enough, you'll remember another leading figure in 20th century politics who had that kind of expression in his eyes. That was Adolf Hitler, who was on cocaine almost continually from 1936 until he died. Adolf Hitler was the biggest coke freak in Europe. He was also taking steroids. And Hitler got more and more of that same look that Ali North has. <laughs> you know that, I know I'm God, but I'm going to try to pretend I'm not while I take advantage of these schmucks. Timothy <laughs> <laughs> Leary says, speaking as a scientific psychologist, the effect of cocaine is to make you an obnoxious asshole. <laughs> now, the most obnoxious assholes of the 20th century, Hitler and Ali North, right? Cute <laughs> cocaine psychosis. Fawn uh, Hall has admitted in testimony to the DEA that she was using cocaine all the time she was working at the White House. Uh, she was dating one of the Contra leaders who was uh, bringing the cocaine up to Hull's ranch and dealing continually with Ali North. So when George Bush says, I'm going to show how bad the problem is, we'll go across the street and buy some cocaine, that's more bullshit. All he had to do was walk down the hall and go over the fucking White House. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're going to take another short break, and then we have a question period, and then I shoot like a bat out of hell to the San Francisco airport. Okay? Short break. <laughs> Uh, I, th I think, uh, well, George Washington said nations have no permanent allies, only permanent interests. Uh, conspiracies have no permanent allies, only permanent interests. Uh, Timothy Leary uh, said to me after reading Illuminatus, there are 24 conspiracies in every, every city, uh, every large social group. When I was at Harvard, I saw there were 24 conspiracies fighting to take over Harvard. And when I was in Folsom, I saw there were 24 gangs trying to take over Folsom. The guards are only one gang. There's the Aryan Nation and uh, uh, JDL, and there's all these other groups in there. And uh, curiously, that came up in a conversation with the former district attorney of Santa Barbara. He just spontaneously said uh, that he was talking about my books. He said, you know, any city the size of, say, Santa Barbara, there are 24 groups fighting to take over the territory. And uh, that's why I don't believe in monolithic conspiracy theories. There's one group that runs everything. If there was one group that runs everything, the world would make a little sense. <laughs> when you start examining what's going on, it doesn't make any sense at all. But uh, like H.L. Mencken said, he believed he was a polytheist because the universe looks like it was designed by a committee. <laughs> the world looks like it's run by a committee in which everybody's fighting, everybody else is standing, everybody else in the back, and, uh, and uh, still the multiple, the multiple conspiracy model. And it makes more sense to me than the idea that there are no conspiracies, which is nonsense, because anybody who's ever worked for a corporation, those corporations conspire all the time, politicians conspire all the time, Pot dealers conspire not to get caught by the narcs. The art world is full of conspiracies. Conspiracy is natural primate behavior. But there is no one conspiracy smart enough to run everything. If there was, the world would start to make sense. According to Colonel Tom Bearden, 
who is the most erudite, knowledgeable, and scientifically well-informed paranoid on the scene. Russians uh, know how to alter reality. They know how to use the quantum equations to move from one parallel universe to another. And they're gradually moving us out of the universe we started into an entirely different universe. Now, if you want paranoid theories, try that one. <laughs> That's appearing all over the computer network, <coughs> right out of John Carpenter's film, They Live. The extraterrestrials are all around us, and the CIA allows them to genetically experiment on a certain number of human beings and mutilate a certain number of cattle, <laughs> and in return, they give the CIA the technology to brainwash the rest of us so we don't see what's going on. Uh, those theories are, uh, paranoid uh, theories are great for horror movies, but if you start taking them seriously, you'll go fucking crazy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I remember you once spoke about owning a Macintosh, so it's a kind of technical question, but you talk about those computer networks. What computer network would you get into if you had a Macintosh computer and modem? Who would you call up and get into for your news sources? That's, uh, I don't have a modem. I've deliberately resisted getting a modem because a friend gave me a pile of computer games and I found after about a month that my productivity as a writer had gone straight down. I was spending so much time with the computer game. So I decided I'm not going to get a modem until my earnings from my writing where I can afford to take off a couple of months every year and just play with the modem. <laughs> Yes. What do you get your source for uh, the Gospel according to Mary Magdalene? Um, various Gnostic Gospels and my own perverted imagination. <laughs> yes. Hey, uh, did you go to that psychedelics conference at the Claremont Hotel on the 24th? No. I haven't been invited and I got a lot of other work. Yes. May I have a two part question also? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's the last question. Actually, it should be easy. Uh, what's Jacques Vallée doing on his compilation of the UFO sightings and whatnot? What? Who? Jacques Vallée? Yeah. Uh, any, any new conclusion? The last I heard, he was convinced that the UFOs are a disinformation system created by an intelligence agency, and that writing about it just made him sound paranoid, so he concentrated on running his computer business and writing a book on how to use computers intelligently and has just given up on the whole UFO thing. Unless something new has happened that I haven't heard about. The second part? Actually, it's related. Um, I was reading in your book recently um, that, uh, that he said uh, he gave in gracefully. They relate in space-time in ways which we, for which we have at present no concepts. So I was wondering if he had made any advancements or... or if he no, that was 1976, uh, 75, basically. Congress party. Yeah, no, he changed his opinion after Elvis. that. He changed his opinion quite a bit after that. He decided it was an intelligence agency setting up a simulation of spaceships to hide something else they're doing. Yes. Would you before you I leave? I know. Would you before you leave in a few sentences tell us why it's more fun to be optimistic than paranoid? Uh, well, I mean it's pretty obvious on the face of it. Well, one thing: longevity statistics. Optimists live longer. John Barefoot at Duke University has collected a lot of statistics on that. Optimistic people outlive pessimistic people consistently. If you compare them by sex, by age, by eating habits and diet, by lifestyle by race, by all sorts of things. The optimists live longer. Uh, also, optimists have more fun. 
And besides, uh, maybe things are going to turn out okay, in which case the pessimists are killing themselves and being miserable for no good reason at all. <laughs> and the final reason is even if everything is going to turn out terribly, the optimists are having more fun before the final tragedy comes. Whereas the pessimists are living in misery all the time. <laughs> You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And as we just heard Bob Wilson say, it's so much more enjoyable to be an optimist than it is to be a pessimist, which is one of the many reasons that I'm so optimistic about Occupy Wall Street and the Occupy movements all over the world. You know, uh, in 1990, when the talk that we just heard was recorded, uh, it wasn't all that long ago, uh, or at least so it seems to me. And uh, yet from 1990, it would still be two more years before the World Wide Web would even be invented. And for our younger saloners, uh, what that means is that back then we were using 300 baud modems over a dial-up phone line to get uh, directories and files that uh, would come on our screens literally one character at a time. And my guess is that most of us here in the salon can remember that if we want to think back a bit. Now, uh, be honest here. Would you still be hanging out in the Usenet groups and using tools like Gopher if it uh, stayed the way it was back in 1990? Well, I'm sure that uh, some of us geeks probably would, now that I think of it, but uh, (laughs) compared to what we have today, it would sure be boring. And, of course, without the net, nobody would have much of an idea about what is really going on with the worldwide Occupy movement, which is what I want to talk about right now. You know, with a few exceptions, I've had a really positive response to this regularly scheduled now Occupy update in each week's podcast. Actually, it's uh, almost like I'm doing two podcasts a week, uh, one with the regular featured speakers and the other all about the Occupy movement. And while I realize that these podcasts are now much longer, uh, I also realize that it's a major irritation for some of our fellow saloners who don't enjoy the uh, benefits of a high-speed internet connection and the files are getting big. But I also feel a sense of duty about getting this important information out to a wider audience. And, uh, of course, I've noticed that the brilliant comic and podcaster Joe Rogan, uh, who has a huge podcast audience, uh, well, he sometimes runs his podcast to almost three hours. So, (laughs) my reference point now is uh, to not exceed Joe's programs. And for my friends who were concerned about me getting discouraged about some nasty emails that I sometimes receive, uh, like the one I read last week, well, have no fear. Uh, Things like that aren't going to slow me down. Uh, What you may not know is that I've been involved in protests and demonstrations for a long time now, uh, beginning with the painful experience of going through an anti-Vietnam War demonstration while on the way to my ship and uh, wearing my Navy uniform, Uh, all the way to having full cans of beer thrown at me as I picketed a Super Bowl game during the first Gulf War. So don't worry about me, I'm not going anywhere. The only major change in my life so far that the Occupy movement has brought about is uh, one that many of our fellow saloners will applaud. And that is uh, the fact that I've almost completely detached from watching football. When uh, a few podcasts back, uh, I guess a month or so ago, I mentioned my love of American football, I received an awful lot of, oh no, emails. 
However, one of our fellow Slaughters did give me a pass because I also mentioned how much I enjoyed Neil Stevenson's brilliant novel, An Anthem. But with the occasional Saturday appearance at our local Occupy Street Corner demonstrations, on to the more time-consuming work of monitoring dozens of Occupy video streams, well, there not only isn't time to watch football, but the amazing thing to me is that I've suddenly found football quite boring when compared to what's going on with the movement. Hopefully, uh, that will redeem my errant ways in some eyes. Now, in the past few weeks, I've started getting messages from some of our fellow Slaughters who are using a few of the sound bites from the video streams that I've captured and putting them into their own projects. And I am eternally grateful for all who are doing so, because in my mind, it seems to justify all the time that I'm spending gathering this information. And to help those sound artists out a bit, I've set up another website in blog format that consists only of each Occupy update from the podcast. So what I've done is to just strip out the second half of these podcasts and put each one in its own blog entry uh, to make it a little easier to find and to give you a place to make comments specifically about the movement if you want to do so. The uh, URL for that site, by the way, should be easy to remember as it is OccupySalon.us. Well, it's uh, only been one week, actually six days, since we were last together here in the salon, but a lot has happened since then. In fact, so much is happening each and every day in the Occupy movement that I've uh, had to give up trying to keep you up with the latest news. Instead, I'll spend this time each week in a more of a reflective way, pointing out events that particularly struck me, and, of course, reading your emails about how you are participating in this global revolution yourself. And, by the way, you can send those comments to Lorenzo at OccupySalon.us. So, this past week, uh, what were some of the highlights? Well, one of my favorites is the attention that the Hawaiian singer Makana is getting. When I linked to his song, We Are the Many, last week, there had been barely 1,300 views. Now it's around a quarter of a million in climbing. As you know, besides the news item about his performance at the Meeting of World Leaders... I also played the YouTube version of his song. Since I didn't have permission uh, to play that song, I did what I usually do, and that is to play it first and then beg forgiveness later. (laughs) Fortunately, I came across this story early on, and so I've been able to exchange a couple of emails with Makana, and he very graciously said that he had no problem with me playing it, uh, since this is a free and non-commercial podcast. The reason I say I was lucky to get in touch with him uh, early on is that in an interview with him over this past weekend, he mentioned that he's now getting thousands of emails, which of course means that he's not going to be able to respond to many anymore. And I'll be having more to say about this brave young man in my next podcast, but today I've got a lot of other items to mention first. By the time you listen to this podcast, you'll be well aware of the horrific assault on peaceful students by the police at the campus of the University of California, Davis. It was really a terrible scene, and in the weeks ahead I'll have more to say about that, but right now that particular story is still evolving, and so I'm going to wait a bit and see what happens on that campus. Another story that is still evolving is the story of the Arab Spring. And it now looks like even the murderous dictator of Syria is going to be driven out of power uh, before too long. Unfortunately, he has already murdered over 3,500 of his own people in a desperate attempt to hold on to his despotic powers. And in the news today, from Egypt, it continues to sadden the world as the old men who replaced Mubarak are doing everything in their power to keep the people down. 
As you know, after the first big success, it was hoped that the people of Egypt were actually about to experience democracy. However, infighting between several factions of the demonstrators drove enough of a wedge between them to stall the revolution. Now that they're back to reuniting, uh, at least a little, the demonstrations in Tahrir Square are back. But once again, the Egyptian establishment, Egypt's 1%, are murdering and maiming the demonstrators. In fact, I said I wasn't going to do uh, keep up with the current news, but this is going on right as I'm recording this. Uh, uh, there's a live video feed right now coming in from Al Jazeera that shows Tahir Square once again packed with people who are protesting the military dictatorship that co-opted their Arab Spring Revolution. So if you've been missing this news story, you may want to surf over to Al Jazeera and watch some of their video feeds that are coming in from the action in Tahir Square. As of right now, we know that over 22 people have recently been murdered by the Egyptian government in an attempt to end these demonstrations. As much as I want to stay tuned into that action right now, however, I've got to tune it out for the next few minutes and finish this podcast. But I do want to at least just play a brief soundbite that I recorded a few minutes ago from the Al Jazeera feed in Tahir Square, where things are even worse than they are for the demonstrators in Oakland, Portland, UC Davis, New York, and other places. of course is how are protesters going to react let's get the view of one of them Khaled Abdullah you are Egyptian activist uh, and also an actor I know can you give me your initial thoughts uh, about this concession if you like I think I'm afraid I think it's entirely irrelevant I think if they were going to make a resignation of conscience they should have done that months ago Assam Sharaf appeared here early on in in March and said that he would step down if the revolution's demands had not been met clearly the people are way in advance of him. Uh, I, I, I think it's completely irrelevant. I mean, it's a government that in any case would have been gone in a week's time. I don't think it adds any pressure. I don't think it does a thing. This is about the people and their relationship with SCAF and a very clear message being sent to them to step down immediately. What do you think the repercussion, though, could be of this, uh, of this news if, if it, in fact, is at the end of the day accepted? Do you think it might actually energize these crowds because they're actually getting concessions from SCAF? I don't think this crowd cares at all about the government. What is going on here is a battle on the streets in which people are being killed. You've seen, and we can see behind us, the number of bodies that are going back and forth, the numbers which are mounting um, dead in the morgue, the intimidation that is going on uh, around the morgue and in the streets around us. I don't, think it, I don't think it matters to us at all. What matters to us is SCAF. What matters to us is that we, ha is that we are facing the opportunity to build uh, to build this country from the ground up without the army imposing itself, uh, imposing itself upon us and, and, and wanting to be above the constitution, wanting to be above the rule of law, wanting to be above everything. This is, a, this, is a, this, is a, this is an army that has tortured civilians, that has intimidated civilians, that has imprisoned us, that has, that has, that has put 15,000 people on military trial. They have to go. They have no place in the government that comes. And the government that has been sitting there that has just put forward his resignation has been complicit in that the whole way through. They should have resigned months ago. Do you think that it could be, if true, a, a first step, if you like, to getting your main demand met? The fact, if these, it's are the just, these are just cards. These are just cards that are being thrown. You know, they're also resigning to save face. 
You know, this is not just, this is not an extra this is not extra leverage of pressure on SCAF. The pressure that is being put on SCAF is being put on the people in the streets right now, the people who are fighting in front of the Ministry of Interior, the people who have died. That is where the pressure is coming from. It has nothing to do with government. The government here has lost all its credibility. Is there also a worry, Khaled, if the cabinet does uh, does resign on mass like this, then there becomes you know. No buffer, if you like, between the people and, and the military. Essentially, I mean, we don't really know. We're hypothesizing here what would come in the place of the government. But if, if there's nothing in the interim, it, it really means that SCAF is just completely running the show. No, it doesn't mean that they're running the show, and they never were a buffer, and never have been a buffer, and never will be a buffer. As I said, they were going to be gone in a week's time anyway. There are many alternatives. There's the possibility of a presidential council. There's a, pos there's a possibility of, you know, in Khazwatani, I can't, I can't think of the translation right now. There, there are many different possibilities for, for, but the point is that, you know, elections now, or the government now, it's like a skin graft on a, on, on a paralyzed body. What we're doing here is a heart transplant for a body that only owns the future. And, that, and, and, I, and I can't say that clearly enough. And with it, it, the SCAF has no future in it. It has no future in it. So they need to get the message as quickly as possible that they need to go. And on top of that, international governments, who I hold also complicit in everything that is happening here, international governments who have replenished the stocks of tear gas and bullets that are being shot at people right now, that are, the tear gas that is clinging to my lungs, International governments have been complicit in this. They need not to do a rerun of what they did last January when they took ages in order to condemn the police and, and army brutality which we are facing. Right now, they need to put all pressure on SCAF to resign. And we own the future. We will build this up. These people out there are beautiful. These people out there are people of conscience. They know what future they want to build, and they know how to build it instinctively. We need to enter that process, and SCAF needs to step aside. Khaled, you were here during the um, uprising in January and February, I believe. So how does it compare, you know, the last few days, how do they compare um, to back then in February? What we're seeing here right now is what we saw on, the, on January the 28th, exactly. Except now we have, an, we, have, we have a higher level of awareness. The battle lines, the ground is completely clear. The lie that was peddled on January the 28th onward, that the army was with the people, clearly has fallen. The discourses that they have tried to peddle are, are, are completely wearing thin. People do not believe them. The army has consistently lied to us, has killed us, has tortured us over the last nine months, and the people out there know that. So they know what they want, and they're not leaving until they get it. I do completely understand, uh, you know, the, the sentiment and the passion you're expressing. But you, you talked before about a presidential council, other interim solutions, if you like, for um, the power vacuum that would emerge if the military were to step down. But those interim solutions haven't really got much traction over the last few days. There really hasn't been much talk about how a presidential council, who would be in a presidential council. So, you know, what do you have to say about the alternative? We know what you don't want, but what do you want? Well, I mean, I don't see why we're supposed to have found a solution in the space of two or three days. But anyway, other solutions have been put forward consistently over the last nine months. So, so we haven't come to anything. 
Well, they haven't come to anything because we've had SCAF facing down on us, torturing us, and not allowing those things to happen. We have not had, we have not had room for a proper dialogue to take place, for things properly to move forward. And I need to add another thing, which is that the Muslim Brotherhood also are standing in the way of things. They believe that elections are going to take place in a week's time, and they believe that that is their opportunity to officially enter government or officially enter the process of, you know, officially enter power. I don't see how in a week's time we're going to have elections. I don't see what Egyptian citizen is going to go and, and, and cast his ballot, cast his vote at the ballots when his fellow, when his fellow citizens are, 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 are being killed. We're in, emergen we're in an emergency situation right now, and the solutions are there. You put your trust in the people. The people, time and again, have carried us and will carry us forward. And the solutions are there. We have great people. We have, we have the other solution that was suggested months ago of, of forming a, of, of forming a government, of, uh, you know, forming a temporary government of technocrats. We have the possibility of alliances between presidential candidates. We have all sorts of things that can happen. What is unacceptable is that people be killed on the streets consistently. We have thousands of wounded all over the country. This is unacceptable. This has to stop. Once that stops, with clear vision and clear sight, which we can see clearly in the square, we will build our future. I have absolutely no doubt in that. And we're not walking blind. We've had some reaction from the United Nations and from the European Union, but what would you like to see the inter international community do now? As I said, they need to condemn and they need to ask SCAF to step down immediately. They need to stop selling arms to the military. They need to stop supporting the military. I don't know when they're going to start doing that and I don't know when they're going to start waking up because the message out here is directed at the military and is directed straight at them. For the last nine months, they have been complicit. David Cameron's first trip down here was to sell arms in the Middle East. William Hague, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, all the foreign ministers who went round this square and were given tours by the military have been complicit in the violence that we are seeing right here in the square. They need to wake up and they need to see that if they want to build a future in the Middle East, if they want to be hand in hand with the people who are in this square who they say have inspired them, then right now they need to come to their support. What the SCAF are saying is that the only way to have democracy is through elections. There's, there's no other option to go forward to get this transition that, that everybody, wants, everybody wants to see a democratic Egypt. I'm not against elections and I am very pro-democracy. But, but the, the elections that are being proposed to us right now are a sham. They're a sham because we have a military which owns, a dis, you know, I think it's around 80%. I don't expect there to be elections. I am not going to go and vote while, while, my friends are being, while my friends are being killed in the streets. I have friends who've lost their eyes. I have friends who are in prison. I have friends who are in hospital in serious critical condition. I know people who have died. I film people who have died. I'm not going to go and cast my vote in, in, in these circumstances. And I'm not going to vote because any vote right now is, 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 is a recognition of SCAF's authority. It's a recognition of them putting down the roadmap, setting the agenda. They have no right to set the agenda and they have to go. Once they've done that, then we can talk about having real elections in which we will all participate happily, fully and build the future which we have created and, not, and, and they have not set down for us. How much of the country do you think back these protests and back even the idea of not going to vote because of what's going on right now? I'm not going to put a percentage on it, but I'm going to say, but I'm going to say very clearly that it is enough people. It is, 
This revolution has always been about critical mass. And also, I know that there are thousands upon thousands and millions of people, Egyptians, sitting in their homes right now who understand very much what the situation is. They have this fear of participating, but I urge them to come, to enter the square, to be part of this, because the more Egyptians are part of this right now, the more we, the more we will have a brighter future. This is the history of our country being laid out in front of us. The people on the, the people in this square are of are of all ages, all sex, all religions. The whole country is represented here. We need them here with us. We know they're with us in our hearts. But 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 it's a very but it's a very important distinction to draw between participation and willingness to die and support. And I believe the majority of the country is with us and against Gaf. Khaled Abdullah, thank you so much for joining us. As you just heard, the Arab Spring is now heading into winter, but the revolution is far from over. It may not be well known, but some of the leaders of the Egyptian uprising have been visiting Occupy Wall Street and talking about the lessons that they have learned this year. And just last night I heard one of the Occupy Wall Street demonstrators say that the General Assembly had voted to use some of the donated money they've received to send a contingent of 20 Occupy Wall Street people to Egypt in order to gain a better understanding of how to manage things on the streets here in the States. So Syria, Egypt, Tunisia, Yemen, and the rest of the Arab world, we want you to know that just because the struggle has now reached our shores, it doesn't mean that we have forgotten about you. As everyone in the Middle East now knows, we're all in this together. And that is exactly why this movement cannot be stopped. So now I'd like to play a few sound bites from the demonstrations that have taken place during the past six days. The morning that I recorded my previous podcast was the morning after the big Zuccotti Park raid, and at first it seems that things were in disarray. Then came Thursday, November 17th, the two-month anniversary of the occupation of Wall Street. And you already know what a big day that was. But I'm going to refresh your memory of that day with some sound bites from my hero of the week, Tim Poole, who has been with Occupy Wall Street since day one. Tim and his friend Harry and a couple other guys from Chicago created their own media team, drove to New York, and have provided us with, I think, the best insights of what's taking place that I've seen and heard. While the other video streamers have been doing a really terrific job of sending the video images to us along with the sound of what's happening, Tim has also added a new layer, and that is of an ongoing commentary about what he is seeing. And I've noticed that some of the other streamers have now adopted that technique as well, and I say bravo. But Tim Poole is one of a kind. In fact, if he was with one of the mainstream news outfits, I'm sure that he'd receive a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting. During one 72-hour stretch alone, I think he was online live for all but maybe 10 hours. And even though he appears to be a relatively young man, what he did on November 17th was amazing. At 7 o'clock in the morning, Tim began streaming live from Zuccotti Park, and at 10 that night, he was still streaming. Also, during the time in between, he was on his feet that whole time, walking from one demonstration to another, and all the time he was describing what was going on and also interviewing people along the way. And I should point out here that Tim doesn't have a professional-level video streaming outfit. What he's mainly been using to bring us frontline news for two months now is just his cell phone, which he says is a Samsung Galaxy S2. The reason I point this out is that 
if you happen to own a web-enabled cell phone, and without spending very much, if any, money, you can get your own stream going to record events in your neighborhood or at your activities. So let's get more of these streams going. After all, there are now uh, Occupy events in over 1,400 U.S. cities, not to mention demonstrations in hundreds of other cities all over the world. You know, the tech is here for us to use, so uh, let's get cracking. But getting back to Tim, during the day of the 17th, there were a lot of short marches, like the one early in the, the morning when they tried to block the entrance to the New York Stock Exchange. And while the demonstrators were unsuccessful in that attempt, the police took over and did it for them by surrounding the entrance to the exchange with barriers and almost as many cops as there were marchers. So thank you, NYPD, for helping to make it more difficult for the one percenters to get to work. Now let's hear a few minutes of what Tim was reporting that evening after he joined about 1,500 people on a march that would eventually join up with what he hoped would be a couple thousand more people who were all going to march across the Brooklyn Bridge. I'm going to pick up just as the Zuccotti Park marchers that he was uh, in in that group were joining up with the union women and men who are supporting the movement. And please keep in mind that you're going to have to uh, kind of sort through a lot of background noise. But that's the whole point of these podcasts. Uh, just hearing that over 30,000 people marched across the bridge that night doesn't really give you the same feeling for the event as does listening to people in the middle of the action. You know, this is uh, live reporting from one of the many, many front lines in this global revolution. So I can hear uh, some kind of amplification. I'm going to try and squeeze through. Excuse me. Revolutionary working class. So one of the uh, particularly dangerous, dangerous aspects of pepper spray right now is that I'm wearing contact lenses. And I'm mostly, whoa, 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 this is huge. Wow, sorry about breaking off. The unions are here. Foley Square is shoulder to shoulder. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and see if uh, they'll allow the stream to get through. They've generally been very generous with allowing me to squeeze through for having the, uh, the live feed going. So I'm going to give a quick recap from this morning because we're here now at Foley Square, which is the final meetup place before the protesters are going to march to the, to the bridges. So we started streaming this morning at 7 a.m. We met up at Zuccotti Park. We went across the street. The march had started. I was on the other side of Cedar. When the police bullhorned that there was no parade permit, they could not march, so the, the protesters then broke away. At Pine and Nash, I got fractured into other groups, but those groups then clogged all of the entrances to, Wall Street, to the New York Stock Exchange from Broad, Wall Street, and Pine. We then made our way to Wall and Broadway, where people were blocking the final exit. From there, I went to uh, Pine and Nassau, where most of the group still was, and we, we sat there for, a few, for about 30 minutes while people talked and made chants and did people's mic. We then went back to Zuccotti. There was an additional march attempt on Wall Street that failed. Now, when we came back to Zuccotti, I was told that there was a mass arrest at Beaver and Broadway, and there was a police checkpoint that wouldn't let me through. Now, back at uh, the camp, some protesters had removed the barricades and actually created a scuffle with police where I saw at least one photographer get knocked over by the police and a few, a few members of the media were thrown. So it started to rain at some point. We did have a few more arrests. During the rain, uh, we saw a huge police presence swarm the park in every direction. They closed off the entire park, all the entrances and exits. 
didn't let anyone in or out. So what had happened was there was a, a young man who was pushing the barricade that was foot, and officers jumped over and tackled him, and he hit his head on a curb. And this is what I'm hearing. He fractured his skull, and I believe he lost some teeth. I heard multiple reports about teeth. And another woman was, was struck in the head somehow, and she was bleeding. After they arrested those individuals, uh, they then opened the park back up. And there's actually a photo that's out right now, probably on Twitter, of uh, this man Brendan called Romania with, with his hair drenched in blood. So after the park opened up, we saw a, a swarm of people run down Trinity full speed, but we weren't able to, to, to gather with them because of the barricade. Now, at that point, I took a quick break, and when we came back, they started to march to Union Square where they met up with the students. And after that meeting, they started to march back, but were, were, were blocked off by police, fracturing a group between three and 5,000, two groups. And then those, uh, that, I was with one group of about 1,500. We just made the Foley Square right now. There's several unions here, easily over 10,000 people. I have rallied at this point. And now there's a march repair where they said they're going to take back our bridges, and that's where we are right now. So for all of you watching, there we have a chat feed going, and you can come in on our social stream, Ustream, the letter U, stream.tv slash the other 99. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our, our handles are at I Will Occupy, as well as at the other 99. And then you can stay with me on my personal Twitter. It's at Timcast, T-I-M-C-A-S-T, as well as uh, getting in touch with me on Facebook. You can search my name, it's Tim Pool. Email is timpoolphi at gmail.com. Search for me. I've got more updates from Occupy Wall Street there. So stay with us. It's so hard to estimate. Yeah, There's people around every corner. 99 people, uh, city council members, union leaders, just got arrested blocking uh, the City bridge. council? Yeah, city council wow. members just got arrested uh, blocking 99 of them to symbolize the 99% of the people out there. Well, what did they block? Uh, blocked off the street. They coordinated with the police department, so nothing could shoot them down. The press was able to film it, and they were on their best behavior because all the cameras are on. Yeah. What you people need to understand, and what you're getting from the mainstream media, is that you're not getting everything because when the mainstream media gets kicked out and they obey these orders because they don't want to lose their NYPD press passes and they don't want to lose their job disobeying police orders and not leaving like cockroaches when the police demand them to when they want to get violent. I just found out uh, right when I was kicked out of the raid that was taking place just a couple days ago on Zuccotti Park, on Zuccotti, Liberty Park. I just found out that people are getting out of jail right now. Their video footage of what happened, at least beating them, uh, was actually deleted from their phones. Their phones wow. were confiscated. Their cameras were confiscated. The people who were arrested uh, holding the square when, when the police raided there. And I heard the police got a lot more violent yeah, as they came in closer and closer and arrested more and more people in that square during the major raid. They got more and more violent. Uh, there's, there's actually uh, my friend George. He has a, a bandage on his neck. He said that they froze the chain and uh, hit it to break it, and it, it uh, cut his neck, and he started bleeding uh, quite a bit, got blood everywhere. Yeah, my friend. So I want to I want to say one thing though about you talking to mainstream media is that you're actually being rebroadcasted uh, by the mainstream media right now. Screw so. you guys. All right. All right. No, we're all now. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just messing around. We all got to do a job, but you got to understand 
a lot of people are getting pulled too because Absolutely. the NYPD wants to do their dirty work. The, the official mainstream media with NYPD press passes, they're threatened with losing their press passes. You know, you know what? They have to obey those orders so they don't lose their jobs. And that's what happened during the major raid. And now the video footage of the police being extremely violent, extremely brutal uh, to, I mean, and, and my friend who just got out of jail, uh, said that they took away his phone, took away his camera, took away his keys, took away everything from him. And they're deleting the video yeah, yeah. from it. And, and, and he says that the video would have came out of exactly what happened here, man. Well, a lot of there it been ten times more people down here. I got to oh. hook on your mic again. Oh, you do? Yeah. Hey, um, yeah. so this is, uh, this is Luke Radowski, founder of We Are Change. That, that picture of that, uh, plain clothes guy. You get any more information? All right. I got my microphone is getting hooked on this uh, microphone. Uh, I want to thank the guys on live stream who freeze froze, freeze froze the police officer's uh, face that sucker punched me, the undercover cop that I chased. Thank you so much for doing that. Another thing, I just uploaded a video of uh, this is a protester who, who was stoned to the floor. He was bleeding from his head profusely. And there's video. You have, you have that. That, that, was, that was Romania. Yeah, yeah. It's up on YouTube.com forward slash We Are Change. We were the first ones to get that video up there. Spread it, pass it up to everybody. YouTube.com forward slash We Are Change. It's up right now. All right, man. Thanks, thanks. Good seeing you. Uh, thanks for, for keeping the footage going and doing what you're doing. Always. So I, wanna, I can see that the, uh, the marches are actually now crossing the pedestrian walkway. So we actually, we broke away from this. Get him out of it, man. Uh, Manhattan. How long is the bridge? No, I run it. It's a, it's a mile. A mile. Someone just verified that NYPD rumor about making an army isn't true, and that's actually Iran. Is what? Uh, the, the rumor about, or the, the you said, uh, and I don't feel the people. Oh, it's the 10th largest army. Yeah, it's not, it's not true. It's, it's Iran. NYPD, that's just another one of those uh, urban legends, I suppose. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this already, but on just two of the streams that I was monitoring and which were carrying Tim's reporting, there were over 40,000 people watching. Then Time, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and BBC, among others, uh, also were feeding Tim's streams on their websites, which brought the total number of live viewers who were seeing events through a little handheld cell phone, well, it brought the total to over a quarter of a million people. That's a lot of people to be carrying in your hand while you're watching history unfold. In the interest of time, I'm not going to play some of the wonderful comments that I recorded when people on the bridge looked out and saw what is now being called the bat signal as it was being projected on the side of a skyscraper. So picture yourself in the middle of a crowd that the New York Police Department said was over 32,000 people, which means that it was most likely even larger than that. And while in the middle of that noisy crowd that we just heard, you look up at one of the big skyscrapers and see a huge round white circle of light with the number 99 followed by a percent sign being projected onto the side of the building. Unless you're a Batman fan, well, you can't really appreciate the emotional impact of seeing something like that in the real Gotham City. But then the bat signal was replaced by a message that appeared only a few words at a time. I'm going to read those words to you now, but if you go to the program notes for this podcast, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, you'll find a link to a video of the bat signal, uh, whose message began with the two words, Mike Check. 
Then, a few words at a time, the message read, Look around. You are a part of a global uprising. We are a cry from the heart of the world. We are unstoppable. Another world is possible. Happy birthday. Hashtag Occupy Movement, Occupy Wall Street. And then the word Occupy stayed up while under it flashed the names of at least 50 or more cities in quite rapid succession, ending with Occupy Earth. It was really thrilling for me to see this live on the net, and so I can hardly imagine how stirring it must have felt to those on the bridge. Now another hero uh, this past week is a man named Ray Lewis, who is a retired police captain from the Philadelphia Police Force. As you know, the interactions between the police and the demonstrators has been difficult to say the least, at least at times. And adding to the fury, of course, is the $150 million surveillance center that us taxpayers paid for and is located near the stock exchange in New York. And while one normally tends to shrug off all of the cameras that are now watching us everywhere we go, only about a third of the women and men inside that surveillance center, who are looking at over 3,000 screens, are law enforcement officers. The other two-thirds work for Goldman Sachs, Citibank, and other Wall Street firms. In other words, us taxpayers are funding a secret watching post that is staffed by the lackeys of the 1%. So it's things like that that are getting on the nerves of the demonstrators and sometimes making them a little too confrontational with cops, at least in my opinion. Which is why also that it's so important that we have brave men like Captain Lewis on our side to calm the waters and help us get a little perspective on matters involving law enforcement. And did I mention that he was in full-dress blue uniform? So to arrest him, the cops had to handcuff one of their own while in uniform. Now here are a few sound bites from Ray Lewis and uh, a little more about his story. I'm not sure if arresting me is going to hurt their case because everybody here has his cameras and I would ask you to take pictures of them arresting me because what would that look like? Definitely. New York police arrest Philadelphia police captain exercising his freedom to protest. So I have them there. They do not want that because that's going to hurt them. All right? But then again, they might think, you know what, If I, I'm, I, I plan to be here every day. Thanksgiving, I want to have Thanksgiving here. They might say, you know what, we've got to stop this guy. Even though it's right. going to look bad to stop him, it's better than keep letting him keep on going. Right. So that's what they're thinking right now. Do, what, do we arrest him and try to get him out of here? Well, then or? I thank you for taking that risk, though. Oh, I really do. Listen, you guys took the risk. Yeah. You took the big risk, all right? The big risk. And what, the only thing I want to say... Do not confront them physically, okay? Some of these guys actually relish. They want you to confront them physically. Don't do that, all right? They give you an order. You can shout and you can scream, but move, okay? And then decide, do you have the, find out from the lawyers here that are helping you, did you have the legal right to be doing what you were doing? And if you do, then you come back and do it, okay? But don't decide on the legality of what they're doing. Right, but they're going to obviously try to provoke you into doing something stupid, and then that's how this whole, you know... Yes, and don't, don't allow them to do that. Don't let them provoke you into any type of violence. Alrighty? And if you don't see me here tomorrow, I'm in jail. Okay? But uh, we'll see what happens. 
If the first two months of Occupy Wall Street featured the Rebel Alliance making surprising gains, I think it's fair to say this past week was when the empire struck back. On Tuesday, Mayor Bloomberg ordered police in riot gear to clear the occupiers out of Zuccotti Park in an early morning raid. Police destroyed the occupiers' personal belongings, including 5,500 or so books in the People's Library on site. One city councilman, Idanis Rodriguez, was thrown to the ground, beaten and arrested at the scene. Mayor Bloomberg and police made sure it was all done away from the prying eyes of the press who were blocked from Zuccotti Park, supposedly for their own safety, according to the city. Then on Thursday, protesters organized a day of action to mark the two-month anniversary of the Occupy movement, a protest known on Twitter as hashtag N17. A thousand protesters gathered near New York Stock Exchange in an almost entirely nonviolent demonstration. There were, however, a few exceptions. Seven officers and ten protesters were injured, according to police. Thursday night, thousands marched over the Brooklyn Bridge in a peaceful protest, and I was there. I'll talk more about that later. Also Thursday, there were protests and arrests in Los Angeles, St. Louis, Portland, Oregon, and other cities around the country. More than 300 arrested Thursday, 252 in New York City alone. Captain Lewis, you were arrested, charged with disorderly conduct, including disrupting traffic and refusing to move on. Um, there was an image of you being arrested in your dress blues uh, down in front of the New York Stock Exchange that was uh, went kind of viral, and we were all in the office sort of marveling at us. There's some uh, footage of you being being arrested. Why did you? You're a retired police captain. You're served in Philadelphia, if I'm not mistaken, right? Mm-hmm. Why did you come down to Occupy Wall Street on Thursday? Well, I didn't come down on Thursday. I actually came down on Monday. And I came down to assist the movement because, to me, I've been retired for eight years in a very secluded life. I moved up to New York, Catskill Mountains, and you can't see anybody. Nobody can see me. And it was a Walden Pond type of lifestyle, which I wanted. But I also used the Internet for my only source of information, not the TV, not the newspapers. And I saw this action being taken by these protesters and the conditions they were living in and the fact that they were not doing this for themselves. They were doing this for all people who were suffering injustice. And that just that conviction that they had for social justice just inspired me and I I couldn't do anything else but come down and I would have been down sooner but I was working on a very important project in uh, upstate New York against the uh, gas companies Uh, the term is fracking where they go down and they destroy the you're involved in in fracking activism upstate so you 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 came down this week will you tell me about um, the the arrest itself and I guess the, the, the question I'm sort of dying to know is what uh, what your interactions with your NYPD was like? Presumably, it was a little different than, your, than if I had been down there arrested or someone else. Um, obviously, you were you were dressed like this. What what was that interaction like? They were an exempt. It was exemplary of professional conduct with me and every protester that I witnessed. Huh, interesting. They had an extremely tough job. Uh, they're human beings too. Okay, and there's a the fight or flight reaction. Interesting. Police cannot have the flight reaction. So they have to have the fight. And subsequently, this can get out of hand. And that's why you have the white shirts. The white shirts are the ones who are supervising. What I saw down there was the white shirts doing fighting. Therefore, who's supervising? Right. That's when you have anarchy. And 
the problem, and I also want to make clear to everyone in the New York Police Department that I, my statements, video was edited, okay? And I knew that was going to happen. And the, and the one step I could take to try to minimize that from happening was to refuse any interviews with Fox News. Uh-huh. <laughs> and a Fox representative did come up to me. I saw the Fox. I said, you stay away from me. You're a big part of the problem. But, but go ahead, yeah. continue. I'm a, I'm a little wordy. If I get too wordy, no, you're not wordy. You're perfect. You're, you're, I mean, this is really fascinating stuff because I think all of us have been. I'll speak for myself. I've been watching this unfold, and you know, in the beginning, um, I think I've been surprised by some of the police overreaction. Um, and people on the internet have said you're naive to be surprised by police overreaction. But I, I think there's part of me that feels that a, I'm worried about. I'm worried about confrontations with police becoming the sort of signpost of the movement as opposed to its content about the 99% message. At the same time, I have been really um, upset and uh, by the various police overreactions we've seen across the country, and it seems consistent. I mean, you have seen time and time again non-threatening, non-violent peaceful protesters being the subject of force, batons, pepper spray. I want to play this video, which is sort of making the rounds this morning now. This is students at UC California Davis sitting down completely peacefully, linked arms, um, protesting tuition hikes, and, and this, is, uh, this is what happens to them. person who emailed that to me this morning said it looks like someone's spraying cockroaches. Mm. Um, that was pepper spray. Um, what is your reaction when you see a video like that? My reaction is corporate America is using their own police department as hired thugs. And that's, that's a disgrace. And I also want to explain, I have to get a few things in here on my own. Please. I was holding a sign that said, NYPD, do not be Wall Street mercenaries. It was misinterpreted. Okay, what I found out, and they'll, they'll never see that sign again for this reason. I was trying to convey the message, do not become Wall Street mercenaries. But just that one word, do not be, instead mm-hmm. of become, it was like I was alluding to the fact that they already are mm-hmm. mercenaries. And that, I didn't realize that right. until I was told. And did and you get a lot of, you got a lot of this- backlash to that? Uh, no, but I, uh, I, got an, I got one person that told me that, and then yeah. a, a light bulb went on my head, and I said, you know what, he's absolutely right. I was inferring that they're mercenaries now, and that is not the case, so I apologize to every NYPD officer out there if you interpreted it the wrong way. But you, you, you seem to have this very conflicted stance on what is happening between the protesters and the police, and I understand that, given your unique positionality, which is why we invited you on the program. You are both a protester and a, a retired police officer. I don't think there's a whole lot of people in that part of the Venn diagram a, a, as of yet. Um, in Wisconsin, when we saw in Wisconsin, when there was the move to, to destroy collective bargaining by Governor Scott Walker, we saw police standing in solidarity with protesters, and it was a very powerful image. And I don't think we're seeing a lot of that so far. When you, I want you to go back to this psychology of fight or flight. 
Describe to me what is in your head as a police officer as you stand there facing people linked arms or, 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 or sort of confronting you in a nonviolent way. What is the psychology of that moment like? Okay. You are being confronted in oftentimes in a nonviolent way, but sometimes there's more violence coming from the demonstrators right. than you see. All right, and there's a tremendous amount of hostility being thrown your way, disparaging remarks against your mother, your parents, right, right. everything like that, uh, being spit upon, and you have to just stand there and take a lot of that. We're all human, okay? Cops are just as human as everybody else, and they are going, some of them are going to lose their temper. Everybody has lost their temper, and that is the reason you have to have supervision, and that's why the, the white shirts cannot get involved in fighting, because then it's anarchy. There's nobody supervising them. Their role in the hierarchy is to be the check on that moment when you lose your... Pool. Exactly. And that is not what we've seen. Exactly. Laura, are you... so important. You have said so many important things, and thank you so much for being here. Um, first, I want to just remind you, and all of us, where you started, which was you were drawn to this movement because of the values it was expressing. Right. And I think that what's been so critical about this week is that we've had an effort to shift the profile of what this movement is about. You can change any picture. Maybe you can't change the Occupy movement, but you can certainly change the picture by pouring enormous amounts of cops into every television frame. Right. And that's what happened this week. But what's motivating people to come to this movement is not that it's a police versus the people conflict. It is because of the values that are being represented here, which I think really were expressed this week as the 99% for the 100%. And then the other thing that you talked about that I think is just, just a little fact is with this question of mercenaries, there was some important reporting over the last few weeks about how, in fact, I think Pam Martins wrote about it for Counterpunch, you have got a Giuliani program, Mayor Giuliani started a program years back called Plan Detail, which it emerges, you know, Wall Street can hire NYPD. Don't pay the benefits, don't pay the pensions. So you weren't entirely wrong, although you're completely right that your words were mistake, you know, vulnerable to, to editing. We saw that this week. Michelle, you want to say something? Well, yeah, I mean, you said earlier that you don't want this to become a police versus protester story. But at the same time, one of the things that's been so interesting about this is that the police have actually played such a kind of important catalytic role Absolutely. in this movement since day one. I mean, a lot of people dismissed it early on in September, you know, it's just a bunch of the same kind of the anarchists, usual suspects in the park. Then there was that really horrible image of a police officer pepper spraying this woman in the face. Suddenly it got a lot bigger. There was a big march over the Brooklyn Bridge in October, 700 people arrested. Then it really took off. I thought that the movement was really dwindling. You know, Zuccotti Park was becoming increasingly kind of sordid and right, sketchy. Right. Then they cracked down with such extreme force. And all of a sudden, again, it's reinvigorated. Right. They have their biggest march ever. Well, but wait, wait, wait. we don't we don't want the movement. I, I don't think if if I'm coming from where you're coming from to to uh, to, to gain in 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 uh, in, in uh, public view based on the number of arrests that are made. Right. Um, I don't think there's, there's any. I don't think there's any surprise that that the captain feels some ambivalence about the movement. I don't right. think you have to be a captain to feel that ambivalence. Sure. Uh, given that there is this real tension when it comes to the rule of law breaking down on both sides, where you've got sort of the jackasses versus jackboots. By the way, the second part of that clip we just heard was from the Chris Hayes Show on MSNBC the Saturday morning after Ray Lewis's arrest, and I got that off the uh, net, I think at YouTube, maybe at MSNBC. Now what Chris got wrong, in my opinion at least, 
was what he said about there not being a lot of people like Officer Lewis who are both protesters and current or former law enforcement people. You know, I've seen and read uh, about quite a few law enforcement officers who understand that they are also part of the 99%, and one in particular is a very close friend of mine, not to mention that he has been a major benefactor of the salon, and not just uh, through the significant financial contribution he made that helped us keep going early on in these podcasts, but he is also one of the original half-dozen participants in the original Psychedelic Salon. As I've mentioned in the past, the salon actually came into being about three years before I began podcasting. Back then, I was testing some voice-over-the-internet software that preceded Skype and Vonage, and since it was ultra-secure, there were uh, six or so of us who got together online each week and had a conference call that couldn't be taped, couldn't be tapped, couldn't be listened to by anybody but us. Not that we were doing anything illegal, of course, but... It was nice to know that nobody could listen in as we rehashed some of the things that took place at the various Palenque Ethnobotany conferences where we'd all met. And one of those people was, at the time, still on active duty with the New York Police Force where he was a probation officer. He's now retired, uh, has some kind of machine in his chest that uh, is keeping his heart beating, and like a lot of us dusty old farts, he's got some back, leg, and hip problems that uh, somewhat limit his mobility. But Wild Bill Rad is still one tough guy, and like Ray Lewis, Wild Bill was on the ground marching on November 17th. Now, I wasn't near the phone when he called that evening, uh, just before the marchers reached the bridge, and so he left a brief phone message that I'm going to play right now. Hey, this is New York Outpost checking in, guys. Uh, Lorenzo, you should get on the net and uh, get to WNYC.org. Uh, hang on for a minute. And look for the Brian Lehrer show. You'll see on the thing shows and hit that. You'll see Brian Lehrer. Uh, sorry, he does the radio show, uh, every call and stuff like that every every morning. And he's uh, it's probably one of the best shows in New York City to find out what the hell's going on. And he did a, a good telephone interview with David Graeber, who is one of the architects uh, behind OWS. And he talks about how it all got how it all got started. Uh, it's quite interesting. You may want to tap into that. I was also just got back from the. Uh, my kidneys don't hold out like they used to be able to. Uh, I was just down at that mass union rally uh, where they marched, uh, where the, uh, the the OWS people marched from uh, from Union Square down to right through the streets and everything, down to uh, the Foley Square right in front of all the state uh, Supreme Court houses and the shadow of the federal courthouse and the federal plaza and all that. Uh, after a while, I just had a pee. <laughs> but uh, you know, I can't. I can't run like I used to be able to. And damn, I know <laughs> I can't take a hit in the chest either. So uh, everything looked pretty cool down there. Um, and I, I took some uh, video, and uh, there, there were doctors down there, nurses, everybody was down there. Uh, I even made a comment. I think, geez, look at all these radicals. <laughs> so it was good. Uh, I will talk to you guys. Things are getting exciting now in this country once again. Adios. By the way, that reference that Bill just made to David Graeber is one that I'll be following up on and will most likely be playing some sound bites from. As you know, uh, Graeber is the author of Debt, The First 5,000 Years, which is a magnificent book, as well as being the originator of the now-famous phrase, We are the 99%. 
I now wished that when I'd returned Bill's call that I'd recorded our conversation because he had some really interesting things to say about what all he's been seeing on the ground in Manhattan, where he happens to live, by the way. Now, while I've got a lot of recorded audio from the reoccupations of Oakland, Portland, and other cities, I'm going to let you go out to Ustream.tv and Livestream.com yourself, where they've posted uh, recordings of many of their live feeds and let you gather that information for yourself. There was one soundbite from Occupy San Diego that I wanted to play, but my notes weren't clear enough as to which of the clips I'd recorded contained it. And so I'll just have to tell you about it, but it is also something that I've heard from several other occupations. And that is the question of how much money this added police activity is costing the cities. Because many of the occupiers are very much aware of this. What may surprise you to learn is that this too is part of the overall strategy of the Occupy movement. By constantly overreacting to a few demonstrators camping out in the downtown sections of our cities, the police are not only fueling the demonstrations, they're also playing right into our hands, as one of the aims of the movements is to bankrupt city police forces to the point where they have to forego buying all this expensive military gear and return to policing our neighborhoods where the real crime is and leave these peaceful demonstrators alone. Now, it may take several years, but the police forces that don't learn to cooperate like we were all taught in grammar school. Uh, if they don't cooperate and don't learn how to cooperate and learn how to be nice, well, they're going to discover that sending a thousand troops to arrest 32 people is a losing proposition. But, hey, some people are just slow learners. The police forces, of course, already know this, but unfortunately it's the 1% who are using them as their private army to put down a popular insurrection. So it isn't the cops who are at fault here, it's the politicians who have been bought off by the banksters. Those are the ones that need to be educated about what it means to be a working-class person in this country, somebody who has to beat each paycheck to the bank each week just to keep the creditors at bay. Anyway, while I'm talking about Occupy San Diego, I do want to play a brief soundbite from one of their recent General Assemblies. This one, by the way, was actually held in the parking lot of the downtown police station, just so the cops would know exactly what they were planning next. See, it's called transparency, something the establishment still doesn't get. But since the corporate-owned media keeps screaming that the occupiers don't stand for anything, I want to play this statement that was agreed on by the San Diego General Assembly, and it was read in a police parking lot. The Declaration of the Occupation of San Diego. As we gather together in solidarity to express a feeling of mass injustice, we must not lose sight of what brought us together. We are here so that all people who feel wronged by the corporate forces of the world can know that we are your allies. As one people united, we acknowledge the reality that the future of the human race requires the cooperation of its members, that our system must protect our rights, and upon corruption of that system, it is up to the individual to protect their own rights and those of their neighbors, that a democratic government derives its just power from the people. But corporations do not seek consent to extract wealth from the people and the earth, and that no true democracy is attainable when the process is determined by economic power. We come to you at a time when corporations, which place profit over people, self-interest over justice, and oppression over equality, run our governments. We have peaceably assembled here, as is our right, to let these facts be known. They have taken our houses through an illegal foreclosure process, despite not having the original mortgage. They have taken bailouts from taxpayers with impunity and continue to give executive exorbitant bonuses. 
They have perpetuated inequality and discrimination in the workplace based on age, the color of one's skin, sex, gender, identity, and sexual orientation. They have poisoned the food supply through negligence and undermined the farming system through monopolization. They have profited off the torture, confinement, and cruel treatment of countless non-human animals and actively hide these practices. They have continuously sought to strip employees of the right to negotiate for better pay and safer working conditions. They have held students hostage with tens of thousands of dollars of debt on education, which itself is a human right. They have consistently outsourced labor and used that outsourcing as leverage to cut workers' health care and pay. They have influenced the courts to achieve the same rights as people, with none of the culpability or responsibility. They have spent millions of dollars on legal teams that look for ways to get them out of the contracts in regards to health care. They have sold our privacy as a commodity. They have used the military and police force to prevent freedom of the press. They have deliberately declined to recall faulty products endangering lives in pursuit of profit. They determine economic policy despite the catastrophic failures their policies have produced and continue to produce. They have donated large sums of money to politicians supposed to be regulating them. They continue to block alternative forms of energy to keep us dependent on oil. They continue to block generic forms of medicine that could save people's lives in order to protect investments that have already turned a substantial profit. They have purposefully covered up oil spills accidents, faulty bookkeeping, and inactive ingredients in pursuit of profit. They purposefully keep people misinformed and fearful through their control of the media. They have accepted private contracts to murder prisoners, even when presented with serious doubts about their guilt. They have perpetuated colonialism at home and abroad. They have participated in the torture and murder of innocent civilians overseas and they continue to create weapons of mass destruction in order to receive government contracts. To the people of the world, we the San Diego General Assembly occupying Civic Center in downtown San Diego urge you to assert your power. Exercise your right to peaceably assemble. Occupy public space. Create a process to address the problems that we all face and generate solutions that are accessible to everyone to all communities that take action and form groups in the spirit of direct democracy. We offer support. We offer documentation and all the resources at our disposal. Join us and make your voices heard. So, as you just heard, there are actually occupiers who do have some thoughts about what's gone wrong with this country and with the whole world for that matter. And many of these same people, myself included, have been posting on our blogs, writing to our elected officials, going to town hall meetings and voting, all to absolutely no avail. Our politicians have all been bought to one degree or another. And ultimately, we shouldn't be getting mad at the politicians because they are simply women and men who have risen to the top of a system, both political systems and financial systems, that are rotten to their core. If writing to your congressman and voting worked, we would have seen drastic changes over a decade ago. But that hasn't and doesn't work. And so we've begun to reoccupy America and take it back from the banksters who have occupied our economy for far too long. Now the final soundbite I want to play today comes from one of our greatest heroes of the 60s, Daniel Ellsberg. 
And if you're too young to know that name, well, you would do yourself proud to go Google him and learn something about how one person, a single whistleblower, did more to bring an end to the American war in Vietnam than all of the diplomats from both nations combined. He's a hero in all capital letters, and here is what he had to say the other night as he prepared to rest his 80-year-old bones in a tent for the night at the Occupy Berkeley demonstration. I'm Dan Ellsberg. I've been arrested a few times before, but I've never seen a scene like this. Hard to believe that the police will try to shut this off, but uh, we'll be standing here to see if it happens. Some people are kind enough to bring me into one of their tents on Mario Savio's steps here in front of Sproul Hall. So I'm really honored to be with them. And Daniel Ellsberg, you'll be staying here tonight on the steps of Sprawl Plaza? Staying here tonight. When I heard the people had voted, I, by the way, I've never seen a group process like the General Assembly tonight. They were actually were voting, thousands of people here. It was an inspiring sight. I wouldn't have thought it could happen. And I'm very pleased. It takes me back to the Rocky Flats Truth Force on the tracks. That was a place where we had a chance to sit on those tracks because they didn't take us off except when the train was coming with nuclear material from Rocky Flats plutonium production facility. So we could have a continuous action. And uh, we were able to stop the trains every time they came around for a year. Well, I haven't seen anything like that uh, since that was 1978. And this Occupy movement is, a, is an invention. I'm tempted to say it's started here, but actually it's, it came right from Egypt and that's from Tunisia. And uh, actually, an inspiring thought to me is that the man who's accused of putting out the State Department cables to WikiLeaks, Bradley Manning, who's sitting in Leavenworth right now, one of his cables, in fact, several of his cables, was a major inspiration to the uprising, the nonviolent uprising in Tunisia. So one person can make, speaking out, can really make a very big difference. And of course, Tunisia led directly to Tahrir Square and the occupation. But I think it's the inspiration for all of these movements in, uh, in America and around the world. Frankly, it's been a while since I felt as much hope as I feel tonight. Uh, I've almost been reluctant to speak in public and let people know how hopeless I, was, I felt it sometimes. And that mood has changed tonight. I don't think it'll go away. The young people are recreating the youth movement of the 60s. And the youth movement changed this country in the 60s. And uh, we haven't seen it really like this since then. So I have great, great hopes for what's coming out of this. Now, Daniel Osberg, you are, of course, well known for being the person who leaked the Pentagon Papers. And you are a defender, therefore, of the right to free speech and the right to publish in this country, freedom of the press. We certainly saw the University of California last week lash out against students who were trying to express their opinions here on campus. Your thoughts about the behavior of the University of California towards the attempts of students to occupy their university? You know, I think the point that Mario Savio made so long ago was that an institution like this and like the executive branch of the United States and the police and the Berkeley police really can't help themselves when it comes to being confronted with dissent like this. Their, their instinct to repress it is just irrepressible. You know, a new, uh, a new device of repression in this country in the last 10 years has been the zone of dissent. At conventions and other places, the police mark off a particular street or put people behind a cage somewhere, you know, or behind fences. Say, so you have your dissent here. Well, 
this is our zone of descent here, and we're going to stand in it. That tent where I'm spending the night is a very nice zone of descent, one that I'm proud to be in, and uh, I'm not feeling constrained at all. Well, that's going to do it for today, and so for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. And I'd like to leave you with a song, one that was written by and is performed by one of our fellow Sloners, Mo Shinola. It's titled General Strike, and it fits my sentiments perfectly. I'd love to sing some happy song And turn my eyes and act like nothing's wrong but this my country's going so astray I want to call a general strike today Our dead as citizens is due I hope every badge and uniform remembers too If it'll keep the drums and boots at bay I want to call a general strike today We've got to make sure people know it's people, not the dollar bill that run the show But they've gone from trust, obey, to just obey So can I call a general strike today? Those corporate coppers really shook When people hit them in the pocketbook And like the folks would think on Labor Day I want to call a general strike today it's all our money anyway And we'll pay for butter over guns any day Before the soldiers take your kids away I want to call a general strike today We interrupt this endless war And ring the bell to tell them playtime's over The bell, not all the guns on earth could stay I want to call a general strike today We all together equal more They'll have to think of something else than fire and sword We'll show them bloodshed ain't the only way I want to call a general strike today Their lust for empire's gonna cost On top of all those we've already lost before our demons charge us hell to play I want to call a general strike today Ain't never been no royal road My bill of rights won't be ignored or vetoed We can't just give all this carte blanche away I want to call a general strike today Yeah, patriotism's got so huge but I don't care, it's still a crook's last refuge And while I'm still not risking jail to say I want to call a general strike today If globalized means me and you Then human dignity and rights counts too For solidarity is here to stay So can I call a general strike today? Yes, solidarity is here to stay, so folks, let's call a general strike today.